0: If you got your uh, Bibles this morning, have your accesses go, we're going to be in Matthew 23 as we finish up this series called Pitfall. And uh, if you're not familiar with looking up Scripture, most of it will be on the screen behind me today as well. So we have been, over the month of August, journeying through this passage in Matthew 23 about pitfalls, that Jesus was warning the religious leaders and people of that day how to avoid in their faith. And, uh, you know, sometimes pitfalls just jump out at us, traps just... Catch us when we're not even looking. And then other times, like we can even be on guard. We can be like, you know, there's something coming for me. Like if you go, you ever been through one of those haunted houses or anything like, you know, something's going to jump out at you. But still, when it does, like you still scream like a little girl, like you're just like overwhelmed immediately. A couple of weeks ago, we had a uh, during July. We have a lot of mission teams in. And uh, we were out actually gardening in the new section of the park. And uh, the gardener that was out there was meeting with our team. And they told us this whole time, just be careful when you're out doing stuff. There's new sod. There's still some holes out in the, in the area. And so Savannah was leading our teams. And she had given them this warning and to be careful and be on guard. Well, Savannah goes out. And here's what happened to Savannah. She, she found one of the holes, even though she was on guard, even though she was looking for it. I'm just grateful, looking at these pictures, that someone was there to capture this moment enough instead of rushing over and helping her. I, I was not the picture taker. I was not the picture taker. Who took the picture, Savannah? Uh, one of our summer interns. One of our other interns. So, uh, so anyway, so even when you're sometimes on the lookout for traps and pitfalls, you still can fall prey. And, and that can happen in our spiritual life as well. Even as we study this, look at it, think about these things, it can still come and trip us up and, and make us fall into a trap that even we say, you know, how did I end up here? I was trying to avoid this. The truth is, following Christ, when we look in Scripture, it ought to be this it's really this simple thing about allowing pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope to take root and blossom in your life, to, to allow the love of God and the love of other people to blend through every part of who you are, and then that eventually comes out in our, how our faith works out into our lives and our deeds. It's a pretty simple process, but yet we get caught up in these pitfalls and traps in the religion sometimes that snare us and keep us from following God. We get derailed, and it's most often not just the external, moral, physical sins. More often than not, it's the spiritual sins, the internal sins of self-righteousness and pride that trip us up in our life, and we've talked this whole series. This has been around since the time of Jesus, and Jesus, as much as he shared about grace and joy and hope, he also came very hard against the religious leaders of that day that really pushed back and said, you know what? This is not what Christianity, this is not what following God is about, and he exposed these traps, and this is what Matthew 23 is about. Matthew 23 follows uh, a story in the Bible where Jesus had cleansed the temple physically, and we've been saying that this is a moment where Jesus is cleansing the inner temple, the inner place where God dwells in us. And over the past few weeks, we've, we've walked through these woes Of Jesus, Where Jesus is basically addressing the Pharisees to the crowd and he's like, woe to you. And woe means judgment, beware, get away from this. And he's saying, these practices, these things you're doing, stay away from. And the woes that we looked at, we we started looking at manipulation, how we can get caught up in adding rules and regulations to the commands of God and making it almost impossible for people to live up to these standards. And it creates this corrupt system where those in authority keep changing the rules to make God's grace just out of reach. And we've probably been victims of that, but oftentimes maybe we're also uh, the purveyors of that. We we manipulate things to keep people just out of the reach of God's grace. And then there's the trap of guilt, where we constantly remind people of their sin and their shortcomings instead of the grace and forgiveness of God that we just sang about so boldly. And we, we do this, and when we do this, we create a system of control, where those in spiritual authority can control those by saying, you know what, you're just not good enough. You still owe God more, so you have to do more. So do this, do this, do that, and then maybe God will smile upon you. Everybody must pay or else. And then we looked at the the trap of infatuation, where we actually become passionate about desires, but we actually become more passionate about the things of God than God himself. The woe talked about how they valued the gold of the temple and the The look of the altar versus actually what was supposed to be inside the temple. And people started looking at the external trappings of spirituality. And this actually leads to entitlement, where we think that our works or our deeds are what make us valuable to God or what makes God love us. And we get caught in this entitlement sense of, look at what I have done, or maybe look at other people and say, look at what they haven't done. And then we talk about invasion. And we talked a few weeks ago about how we allow sometimes these rules and regulations and following God to overcome his grace and mercy and redemption. And instead of looking to God as Lord of our life, we look at him as this being that lords over us. And it invades, not blends in every part of our life, but invades and it looks like it's trying to take over and make us something that we aren't. And this is entrapment. And this is where we feel like there's always a debt that we can owe God and all we can pay every month is the minimum and will never pay it all off. And this was the religious system that people were working in at that day. This is what the, the Pharisees were putting out there. And last week, we saw the shift from him teaching about their teaching or casting woes about their teaching to then casting woes about their character. And the trap we looked at last week was this trap of obligation where we think that we're actually in this spiritual sparring match with God. And if he makes us do some things that we might not want to do so that I can build up enough spiritual equity to one day do some things that I actually want to do. And what this leads to in our life is rationalization, where we think that anything, anything is justifiable as long as I've built up enough good to cover the bad. And it creates this rationalization in us where sin isn't sin. And that's what we've been looking at over the past three weeks. And today we're going to finish up with these last two woes that Jesus communicates. Uh, These two, just like the last one, really expose not just the teachings of the Pharisees, but the character of the Pharisees. Jesus isn't just saying, be careful what you listen to from these men. He's actually saying, these are bad men, a bad moral character, and they're intentionally trying to trip you up. So let's pick up this, what we call this skating exposé of the religious leaders, and we're going to look at Matthew 23, 27 to 29, and then we're going to jump down to verse 33. Before we jump into this, I want you to, as you're, we're reading this, Jesus is going to use two very vivid pictures to close this out, two illustration, two word images that will really communicate something deep and powerful about what the religious leaders are. So let's look at this. Verse 27 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And then skip down to 33 and he says this. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Take a breath for a minute, because I mean, you think wow. I mean, I don't know about you, but if Katie showed up after work one day and was like, "Patrick, you are like a whitewashed tomb. You're a brood of vi- I'm like, I mean, that is like a stab to the heart, isn't it? I mean, this is not like a you know under the table jab or like a backhanded slap. Man, this is like a frontal assault on these two men and for these men, the Pharisees, and for us to understand what these two things are, I want us to to take a look deeper at what he means by whitewashed tomb and brood of vipers. Now, this idea of a whitewashed tomb, and there should be a picture on the screen for you to see, This was not the practice. I think for some of us, we hear this and we're like thinking these beautiful tombs. All right, like if we've had people in our life pass away, this idea that we would go and visit their grave and make sure the tombs clean and make sure the headstones clean and lay new flowers and all this stuff. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not about paying your annual pilgrimage and paying your respects. Instead, it was actually a practice done once a year where the Jewish people would go around and paint tombs bright white, to help people identify them so that they could avoid them. Because in Jewish culture, there was a firm belief from their laws not to touch or go near a dead body. And if they did happen to touch a tomb or a dead body, then they were considered ritually unclean. And they had to go through a multi-day process of cleansing and then presenting themselves back to the priest and the elder so they could re-enter society. Avoiding tombs was a big deal for them. So every year they would mark in a, such a way that everyone knew that this was a tomb. They was like a whitewashed tomb meant danger sign. I remember when I was in college, I was driving back and forth between Atlanta and I went to school at Auburn. It was about a two-hour drive. And usually I would drive and it was very easy. I, I get behind and all of a sudden traffic has stopped and I, I get behind this thing and it is a big, huge truck that says danger, toxic waste. And I'm driving right behind this. And at first, I don't think much about it. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, it's probably not just going to burst open. All this, But like, what if something happened right in front of that truck? And all of a sudden, it was, like, I had to stop real quick. And I like rammed into it or just something crazy. Like, I started getting very fearful. I mean, they put that big skull and crossbones thing on this huge tractor trailer for a reason. So next exit, I just got off. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to follow this thing. I'll, I'll start getting get some lunch. I will take my time. I'm going to let that thing get way out of the way before I get back on the road. And that's basically what they would do once a year. They would say, danger, danger, danger. Stay away from this. And if you don't, you're going to have to be separated from God and community. Now imagine Jesus is calling the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs. He's basically telling the people, avoid these men at all cost. Avoid what they do. They may look clean and white and natural on the outside, but inside they are dead and full of uncleanliness and unrighteousness. What an incredible, harsh reality that Jesus is laying on them here. He is basically on the back of the Pharisees placing a big sign that says, danger, stay away, toxic, do not go near that. Now, he jumps down to verse 33, and Jesus doesn't let up at all. He basically then calls them a, a brood of vipers, vipers. Now, I don't know about you, like, the, I, I, don't, I don't like snakes. I don't know if anybody in here likes snakes, but there's a, I put a picture of a viper on there. Things that you got to know about a viper in this day, and even in that day, and still to this day, it is one of the deadliest snakes there were. The, uh, they're also known to be very cunning and deceitful, Right? I mean, I just think snakes. If you if you get around them, you look at them. They just look evil and mean, right? Like they're they're out to get you. The vipers that were there during Jesus' day were also called carpet vipers, and they were very common in that time. Let me tell you why they were so bad and so dangerous. It was because one, they could blend into anything. And in the picture there, go back to the oh, oh sorts of, Go back to the other one, right quick. The uh, they can blend in into rocks anywhere right and so you can literally walk by one of these things and not even know it was there even though it was in plain sight and if it struck you like a prey or even a human it would strike you and then it would recall and go hide and here's what it would do it know it it knew it gave you enough venom that it would then follow you slowly behind until you died and then it would drag you off not a human but like a mouse or something like like drag you off to its little den and share it with all of its friends which is the next one and uh, Yeah, and this is why they were called carpet, because uh, like, you could go to a den of this brood of vipers, and it would look like a carpet, and uh, I, I don't want to ever stumble upon this. Like, this is fair, but it, like, everybody understood. When he said a brood of vipers, this kind of image came to their mind, and the way they would often get rid of them was with fire. They would throw fire out, and they would go running everywhere. And uh, that imagery alone in itself just makes me, my skin crawl, but Jesus is calling these men a brood of vipers. So here's what I want you to hear. He wasn't just saying avoid them at all costs as whitewashed tombs. He was also saying these men are out to harm you, trip you up, and trap you. They're hiding in plain sight, but they have a venom of religiosity that will kill you if you let it. Slow death that it will move you and you have become their prey. Think about this for a minute. Of all the scathing remarks we've heard up to this point, these two images are probably the most damning and the most ridiculing. Jesus wasn't just attacking them, their teaching, or even maybe their character. He was singling them out as one of the top threats to what it meant to follow God. To pursue God, he's saying these men in their religious clothing—they created all these rules. They've told you, "Here's what it's about." Avoid them because they are out to harm you. And he uses a word, two words here. He calls them hypocrites, and he says they are full of lawlessness. What does this mean? That's in verse twenty-eight. He says, "So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy." and lawlessness. What do these two words mean? Hypocrisy means this. It is an intentional covering of wickedness and false righteousness. Best way to say it's a wolf in sheep, sheep's clothing. It's somebody who knows what they put on the outside looks good, but they know on the inside that they don't, they're not living up to that. They are putting on a false righteousness to cover up an inner wickedness. This isn't a mistake. It's not something that they stumbled into. It is a complete intentional action. For what Jesus is saying here, they are shrouding themselves in righteousness to hide their wickedness, to inject you with the same venom that they have. And so he's calling them hypocrites. Then he calls them lawless, men of lawlessness. And what this means is that it's an intentional desire to create chaos, conflict, and tension. And Jesus is telling his followers here that these men... It's not that they don't want just good for you, but they are out to harm you, create chaos in your life in a way that allows them to indulge in their own desires. They are out not just to steer you in the wrong direction, but to keep you in a sense of chaos and and conflict so you can't move forward in your faith so that they can remain in control and keep their desires satisfied while you always just seem a little less than them, a little lacking. You can never quite get to their level. I don't know about you, but when I read this and I go through this passage, I have an extreme disdain for these men. I mean, I look at them and I go, how? How could you? How could you do it? Somebody who is a religious leader, how could you do this? How could you intentionally lead people astray? Maybe, it was just, maybe you just got your teachings wrong to begin with, and but Jesus is very clear here. Like, this is intentional on their part. And I was like, how could you men do this? And then I stop for a minute, and I look at my own life. I look at other religious leaders. I look at other people, even in the way we interact with each other. And the truth is, this bears fruit in all of our lives. And as much as disdain I have for them, I want to make sure that this is not a life that I fertilize and grow in my own heart, in my own desires and my own ways that I lead my family or a church or other people in the faith. And it's so easy to see in this one chapter, these men singled out, but I think part of what Jesus is doing here is also in our life saying, watch your own heart, be careful of your own heart make sure you don't move in to this. Even when you're looking out for it, don't fall into that trap. And the last trap I want us to look at that he points to here in these two illustrations is the trap of condemnation. What these Pharisees had done was fall into this trap that many of us can as well in that this, they were great at showing the sin and shortcomings of other people's lives and by condemning their actions and creating chaos and conflict, but they were completely unwilling to examine their own lives and realize truly they were the ones dead on the inside. Condemnation is a tool people use to make themselves Look bigger by making other people look smaller. Condemnation doesn't grow anyone. It simply tries to make everybody else feel less of a person around me so that I just seem like the bigger person. And Jesus is saying, avoid this like death. It's as dangerous as a deadly viper. And this is such an easy trap to fall into because the truth is this. It's always easier to look outside than it is to look inside. It's always easier to judge others rather than to examine the nature of our own life. It is always easier to jump conclusions about somebody else's motives and their corrupt heart than it is the state of the deeply troubled heart within us. It's always easier to look out rather than in. And that's the trap of condemnation. And here's what happens. Here's what we begin to believe. We believe that our self is more valuable than sacrifice that I must do whatever I can to protect self. The only thing worth sacrificing for is self, not anybody else or anything else. And we can easily fall into this trap, just like the Pharisees. We start to think and operate in a way that says the only thing I'm willing to sacrifice is my own self-importance. Instead of the well-being of others, I'm stepping into this trap of condemnation. I'm putting my foot right into it. And maybe I'm thinking, I, I just want to make sure I'm strong first before i help other people i want to make sure i'm covered first before i reach down and help him and we can justify all these things but the truth is when we start living that way we're actually living a life of condemnation we're saying you stay in your pain you stay at that station until i get to maybe a good enough station that i can help you and this is maybe where the pharisees started but they got to a point that they were wanting to keep people there and keeping their level where they are the problem is this though We are very good at disguising this type of thinking because it's just like vipers that are great at disguising in their presence. We can do the same thing because here's what we can do. We can do what may appear to be humble, gracious acts of generosity or empathy or sacrifice, all the while having a deep motive of self-promotion and self-gratification. I can do something good for someone else as long as others see it, Hear it, or as long as I'm willing to tell others and puff myself up, my spiritual, and my social standing up. I got, you know, it's like if I walk through this week and I'm like, man, I got to do something really good this week so that I have a uh, a good sermon illustration on Sunday, so that I can share it with you guys, right? Or so I can Instagram this moment. Hey, I'm helping this guy out. You know, can you smile while I selfie here with you guys? That we we are so good at hiding this condemnation in our life that we. We want to keep people down and elevate ourselves. We'll even cover it up with gracious acts, but it's out of a heart of self-gratification and self-promotion. We're so good at this. It starts when we start thinking that we're actually competing with other people for our emotional, social, or spiritual standing. This means we stop being willing to sacrifice for others and God and see personal growth and development as the most important instead of anything else so how do we recognize this trap of condemnation? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. One is this. It's when we start to have an elevated view of sin in other people's lives. So we start to, we easily can condemn the sin in other people's lives. Like they say one word and we're like, oh, I know what you're thinking. Like they just, they just give us one word and we're like, oh, uh, you're, you're just jealous of me. Like I, We immediately condemn and elevate their sin. It also creates this comparison between my righteousness and the righteousness of other people instead of God. So I start looking and saying, well, look at me compared to this person. Like I am much more righteous than this person versus actually looking at the standard of God. It diminishes the value of God's sacrifice and sanctification process in our life and elevates the value of my own personal experiences and expectations. So, well, you know, this is what I feel, this is what I want, so this must be what is right. And we stop looking at what God is doing and how maybe he's shifting and changing us and how his sacrifice impacted our life. And this then creates this idea of a spiritual authority, a, a superiority based on not how I, well I can live my life, but sometimes how well I can trip other people up. And I start to set traps for other people so that they fall and I say, look, I'm still the one standing. This is how we recognize condemnation. How does it impact our lives today? Because here's then what we do. We love to point out the weakness and sins of others. That's our first, like, man, I am so guilty of this at times. I'll meet people, and instead of seeing how God is working in their life and what God's doing in their life, uh, that you just see, like, their shortcomings and their sin, and you'd be like, man, I don't know. And you just you start putting that person in a box, and you start defining them by their sin and shortcomings and seeing instead of God's grace in their life. We think that God views us through the lens of comparison, that when he looks down on the world, he sees me amongst his other brood of sinners, and I'm the good guy. And we think that's how he sees us, instead of actually understanding that he looks at us through the eyes of grace. And also that we we actually then start to set traps and create pitfalls for our fellow believers and our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we actually look better as they fall And then I grow angry when others seem to outpace me spiritually. Our God seems to bless those who seem less deserving than me. The Pharisees would get so upset if somebody, some new teacher popped on the scene. That's why they had such trouble with Jesus. He didn't come up through the ranks. He didn't go through their system. He was outside of their system and he was coming in and people were listening to him and they were like, this is what they did all through the New Testament, all through the Gospels. They set trap after trap after trap after trap for Jesus to try to trip him up so they could say, see, look, he's not who he said he is. And he danced around and jumped over every one of these traps in such a way that proved he was actually more worthy than they were. And so when he said this toward the very end of his life, he was saying this with as much authority and as much respect as any Pharisee or religious leader in that moment. But they had been trying to do this and they were growing angry because they couldn't understand why God was blessing him because they were the righteous ones because look at what they did on the outside. The danger that shows up with condemnation is this. (coughs) It's idolization. We start to make ourselves God. And we start to make how God and others perceive us the most important thing to maintain. Idolization. We become the center of the universe. We start to worship what we are, who we are, and what we think, what people think about us. We make ourselves an idol and want other people to worship us as well. And I want to tell you, if that's what you think biblical Christianity is this morning, is this idea of making you the self-centered part of the story, then I want you to hear, I want to redirect your perspective on what true worship is. Because we were never designed, man was never designed to be a recipient of worship Instead, we were designed to be an expresser of worship to God. And when we start wanting to be the recipients of worship, we start heading down a road of a Pharisee. We start condemning people for what they don't do for us and how they don't help us. So I want to redirect that. But And then if, you, if you're here and you think, hey, this is a tactic we should use or... To to grow a Christian church, I want you to actually understand that this, you're actually teaching people to worship someone or something that will move them toward lawlessness and chaos. And you're creating a hypocrite out of yourself and of them. All you're building is a brood of vipers. If that's what you think Christianity is about, is this condemnation and this trap. Let me give you two primary impacts of idolization in our life. Because it sounds kind of good when you think about it. Like, all right, that might be some bad things, but maybe in the center of the universe not such a bad thing, right? I mean, if everybody served me, everybody did what I wanted to do, like, that's, I, I'd give it a shot for a day, you know, if God would turn the reins over to me for a day. So let me tell you some things that show up in our life when we make ourselves an idol. The first is we create a mindset of indulgence in our lives instead of in, in a worship of God. If we are the ultimate authority, then guess what? What I want, what I feel, what I desire must be good. I don't have to re- rec- uh, exercise any restraint, our self-control. And even without going out of the myriad of biblical teachings that push against us, if we just use a logical thought, let's just say everybody in here thought that way. Like in this moment, in this day, right now, what I feel, what I desire, what I want in my life is primary. It would take about 10 milliseconds before we had major conflict in this room. Because somebody wants it 10 degrees hotter, somebody wants it 10 degrees colder. Somebody wants this or that. And as soon as we walk in, they want, you know, I wanted this kind of tea. It wasn't here this morning. Somebody's paying for that, you know? And so it would not take one second until our indulgences create conflicts with other people that are unresolvable if we're all living this way. If this is what we're doing, if we become idols, we will have wars. Wars are the result. Of conflict, and I'm not even talking about the big wars of our nations fighting each other, I'm talking about the wars in our homes, the wars within our family, the wars at work, the wars within whatever relationship you have are often there because somebody has made themselves an idol and believe that their wants, desires, and needs should be indulged by everyone else. Chaos. This is chaos. This is what lawlessness is, right? Indulgence. But it doesn't end there. The second thing that creates within us is an environment of isolation in our lives. Isolation because an idol will elevate ourselves above everyone else and everything else. And so we end up separated from everything else as well. If we elevate ourselves, we separate ourselves. And we start to think no one is worthy to join us or stay with us for a long period of time. They can stay in our lives just long enough for them to help us. But as soon as it starts costing me to have them in my life, they're gone. We remove them. And here's what we do. Then we move out of community with people and with God because we're the only thing of importance. And what we've done is this, is we think we've elevated ourselves, but we've really created a prison or a tomb to live in, isolated from everybody else. Whitewashed tomb. We're empty, dead on the inside, and nobody wants to come around us. Indulgence and isolation are always the result of idolization. I want to end, I don't want to end on that note today because there is a beautiful picture of how you fight these woes, these condemnations. Because when you think about it, the trap of condemnation and the other ones, the, the things that lead to self idolization and all the other traps that we talked about, at their very core, are missing one thing. One thing. And it's the desire to really love. To love. The Pharisees would push back on Jesus if he said that and say, No, no, no. We speak the truth of God. Listen to us. Like, didn't you, you hear us reading the scriptures that they may say, Look at all the good works that we have done, or look at the sacrifices we make in the temple. And Jesus would simply say, you do it all without love. 1 Corinthians 13, one through eight, sums it up this way. And I love this passage. It's a great passage for this to end on. It says this, and it should be on the screen. It says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Are resentful. It does not not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You want the cure for a Pharisaical life of a hypocrite, of a being called a brood of vipers, a whitewashed tomb? It's to love. To love. It's simple. Remember, we talked about how sometimes we make this Christian life very difficult. It's not. It's not about what you say, what you do, how much you do this and that. It's about love. 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 My question for you today is this. Are you using condemnation as a tool to try and make yourself better by destroying the lives of others? Is that your mode of operating? Would Jesus tell people to avoid you at all costs? because you harm them intentionally or you're, you're trying to, to bring chaos into their lives? Would you today stop making yourself the idol of worship and instead turn your focus back on God? And in doing so, then would you love, love, love? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? As we come to a time of uh, prayer at the end of this series, It's a moment that uh, just wants to maybe stop for a minute, reflect on some things, and allow this truth to penetrate our heart a little deeper. It's it's easy to read these words and think, uh, that's not me, I'm not a Pharisee, I'm not even that religious. And maybe this just plays out in many areas of our life. And we love to condemn people Maybe we'd love to to just live our lives invading. People are getting excited about the things of God instead of God himself. Would you take a moment and uh, just in the stillness and quiet of this moment, ask God to search your heart, to know your heart, to expose within you any of these traps that we've heard over these last few weeks. God, as we... uh, In this time of thoughtful and response, it's so easy for us to think that we come to you with something. That we come to you, God, with something to offer, something that we can bring value to you. But the truth is, God, we come to you dead and empty. You're the one that gives us life, you're the one that gives us hope the one that even gives us the faith to believe in you. So God, I just want us to have a moment where we can willfully surrender our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies to you and this desire to love you and to love others with all of our heart, to allow 1 Corinthians 13 to come alive in our hearts and to push out these traps, these pitfalls, to give us the wisdom to step beyond them and step away from them and to jump over them. God, let us not be Pharisees in any part of our life. Let us put death to death and let us walk in the life that you have for us. Let us walk in that love and the life that you have called us to. Father, we surrender ourselves to you this morning. May your truth and your word Hold tightly to our hearts in a way that it brings about change and brings about not obligation to follow you, not out of guilt, but out of a passion and a love for you.